The Georgian Voices podcast is brought to you by the development team at St George's. It is our aim to build and maintain lifelong links between all those in the Georgian family to inspire them to be the very best versions of themselves. In each episode of the Georgian Voices podcast series, we are joined by a guest member from our Georgian family as we hear from them about their time at St George's and what they've gone on to do in their life and career to date. Each episode is available to listen online, including our website, georgianfamily.co.uk, where you can also read our latest news, including the newly published edition of our Always Georgian magazine. This week, our Deputy Development Director, Joe Ridge, is joined by OG James O'Sullivan, founder and CEO of Cobas, a hospitality management technology company. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode of the Georgian Voices podcast. Thanks again for being part of the podcast. If it's okay, would you be able to talk a little bit about your company and give an overview in terms of the impact that it makes? Yeah, so Cobas is a hospitality management platform. Um, so if you sell food and drink uh, to the public in a non-retail setting, um, we'll have a suite of tools that will enable you to run the business uh, more efficiently, uh, more profitably and uh, in a more controlled manner. Um, we break the business down into four different pillars. So there's the in-venue stuff that you'll see as a customer. So tills, kitchen screens, kiosks, ordering apps these days. Uh, we've then got the operational side of the business, which looks after sort of the, the daily running of the business. So uh, balancing your tills and your safes at the end of the day, health and safety checks, but then also um, stock control and supplier ordering, allergens, calorie counting. Uh, and recipe management. We've then got a staffing section, which covers the full life cycle from recruitment, applicant tracking, onboarding, HR files, rotors, time off, and payroll. And finally, there is a customers-focused section where we've got uh, things like loyalty schemes, we've got gift cards, prepaid balances, reservations, um, and all of those uh, things that you would do where you uh, interact with your customers. All of that system is wrapped into a single application that's got a reporting layer um, above it. Um, and that is the package uh, that we call Cobas. So that uh, sounds, sounds really interesting. So how, you've been doing this since 2009, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, back in the 2008, some friends of mine that ran some bars, um, they actually went to a friend of mine and said, we've got these spreadsheets. Can you make them into a system for us? And very kindly that friend said i could do um but you'd be better off speaking to james he, he <laughs> does more of this more of this than i do um so they they came to me and we started fleshing out um what was going to in the future years become cobas um they had some spreadsheets that looked after basically their their deliveries and stock control from suppliers and they used that to work out their their gross profit uh, in each of their three bars and Every week they had to copy and paste that data into another spreadsheet to get their overall position. And they thought, this is boring. Um, can we uh, make it better? And at the time I had, I had a fairly nice lifestyle. Um, I'd started doing um, uh, IT contracting in 2004, uh, which coincided with the, the, the boom in, in poker. So I was playing a fair bit of that. There was a lot of easy money around. So I had, I had a fair amount of free time 
uh, it's fair to say. And I thought, yeah, this is an interesting thing. I, I spent a lot of time in their bars. Um, I like writing software. It was an in interesting challenge. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a crack. And I think on the, the 12th of March, I think it was 2009, we, we put the system live for the first time. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I always remember the, the first few weeks, it was uh, every phone call was like, this is incredible. Everything's just there. And it's really easy to edit and we don't get conflicts. And I think the, the company in question used to have uh, an annual awards um, night where they gave okay. out like the best bartender, those sort of things. There was an award for the person who broke the spreadsheets most. Um, which, which they were able to retire once they once they got rid of these. I'm sure they have other ones that, that were probably broken as well. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was that was nice to do, and that was the the start of quite a long journey um, and a lot of learning around that industry. How how then has the industry in general changed over <laughs> over the years? Have, have there been any significant trends that you've noticed or had to um, adjust to? Yeah, I mean, the 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 difference in this in how a venue operates today versus I mean, let's take COVID out of the equation. It's all changed since then. But even if you looked at something in 2018 compared to 2012, it's it's chalk and cheese. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my background is is very much in web based applications, where the the general uh, ethos of people is that moving data from system to system via APIs is pretty much the given um, data should just move it shouldn't be siloed away when i first started doing the cobas system it was all back of house stuff there was no epos at the time so it was it was only ever sort of like looking back on your data um but to really get the most value out of that you need to, to have access to the trading figures um so you might know that you started the week with 10 bottles of vodka you bought 40 and you ended with six but did you know that was the correct amount of vodka to end with. Like, were you not pouring enough, so you you were giving people bad bad experiences, or were were people taking too many staff drinks and breaking down your GP? But you can't get that information unless you can see how many drinks were actually sold that used vodka. And as it was just me at this stage, I didn't really want to write the POS system because they're they're really quite important bits of of the business. If they go down, they need to be. Well, they need to not go down if they do need to fix them straight away and being just one person and in venues that traded predominantly sort of 10 p.m to 2 a.m uh on a friday and a saturday i didn't feel that i could give the right level of support to those clients as just me so i thought you know what i'll just i'll find that ethos companies that are good i'll integrate with their data we'll do the best of both worlds i found that the people who i spoke to were just like no we've got no interest in sharing our data. And I was like, wow, this is a, this is a, a, a very different uh, experience to, uh, to what I'm used to. And I was like, okay, fair enough. We can't do that. I kept looking for a while. And then when I got knocked back by about the sick company uh, in 2014, I was like, ah. I was actually on a, on a skiing holiday at the time. Yeah. See, nice, nice lifestyle. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I said, how, how hard is it to write an EPOS system that lives in a browser? Um, and over the following four afternoons, um, I wrote 
a prototype that it didn't it wasn't fully featured it didn't work but it proved that i could make a computer screen look like a till yeah um, and all the functionality worked um and so from that point on it's like right well if you're not going to integrate i'll have to write my own um and that was fine because by that stage we'd already built a lot of the other back of house processes that or sorry not processes a lot of the other back of house elements that we needed to make uh uh, a bigger system so we started with the operational piece but then we added in the rotary and we added in reservations uh, for different areas of the bar we started on the staffing section um so we'd actually built out quite a big application and yeah yeah the the epos didn't arrive till 2014 um but looking at all of those things back in those early days you didn't really have very many operators that had systems at all the bigger guys so like your your weather spoons your stone gates yeah. your butters they, they had probably zonal and forth they were the big the big two players um but they cost serious serious money like we're, mm-hmm. we're talking seven eight figures a year for their their estate sizes um and it was only really probably around the 2012 2013 period where you started to see the odd application sort of popping up mm-hmm. you had open table for booking reservations um you had uh, expedia and booking.com for hotel rooms etc but you didn't have many things for digital loyalty you didn't have um guest feedback surveys you didn't yeah. have many operational systems um there weren't many epos choices lots of lots of people still worked on um, tills that I would class as glorified cantlers rather than <laughs> anything. Because it was, it was just didn't, unless if you're running a, um, a restaurant, a pub, or a bar, typically you were either a massive um, brewery mm-hmm. and therefore you had the money to pay for big systems, or you were a, a one or two site operation mm-hmm. where you were so involved in the business that you knew all these things. Like you know the recipe for your burger, you know yeah. it costs you, you know. 38 well 38p for the uh, for the burger 6p for the bun etc you, you you knew those numbers so you didn't need a system to tell you that um and you couldn't afford to even if you did, did need to so there wasn't that sort of there wasn't that educational requirement and it was only when there were some other systems that were coming around going this industry is really it's not not archaic but it's it's not digitizing as mm-hmm. fast as the retail world. So I, I personally um, look at the retail world and think that's probably where the hospitality world will be in sort of four or five years time. That's the kind of the lead time. Not everything is, is, is applicable, but you can see the kind of things that they're doing. Um, what are they, what are they, speci- what are they specifically doing? So big thing at the minute, or not at the minute, but the first thing that I, that I noticed clearly was the uh, the omni-channel nature of their business. So uh, having things in store was great. Having things online was great. But then knowing, well, I want it today, so tell me which shop it's in. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff happened. Um, and you're seeing that more now with, uh, with restaurant operators that are offering meal kits and delivery services. The whole... Interesting. The, the difference between between your in-venue activity and your out-of-home, so your out-of-venue uh, um, preferences and stuff, they are, they're blurring a lot more. So we're seeing more, like, you can't really run a restaurant these days that doesn't offer delivery or takeaway. It, mm-hmm. it's, leaving, it's leaving too much consumer spend um, out of reach for you. And that'll be a massive, a massive change over the next 
10 years or so that I don't think you'll see any new concept come to market that doesn't have that that out of venue um, elements to them because you're, if you if you don't you're not making the maximum use of your your venue because there are times when people won't want to come out to you but they'll order in so like a Tuesday yeah. night you see a huge spike in in eat at home because you're like, oh, I can't go out I don't want to cook I'll just order in it's the big it's a, it's a mind shift from consumers and therefore there needs to be the the supply of, uh, for that demand from from operators but what that's led to is restaurants that were designed very well 10 15 years ago they have a single doorway and a person talking to, talking to you there so we we have a table etc that that doesn't really work if you've got 15 Bit of a drivers turning up every hour to pick up an order from you so you'll see def- definitely you'll see different designs where there is a specific um online aggregator entrance and, do you, um, and um, there'll be different just sorry that's no, so i was going to say and do you think as a company you'll have to adapt to that and i mean in in what ways are you do are you i assume you might be doing that already um but yeah. it, would it be a big shift away from what you're currently doing at the moment um i i think i mean it's it's an additional set, set of features that you have to offer so it's doing something new that and it makes our application wider that is definitely true but i and what was i say <laughs> It's definitely true that it makes our application wider, but we've done that work now that the pandemic forced us to do it. Um, there was actually uh, a company called um, Orderella who were founded in, I think, maybe, I'm going to say 2015 and failed in 2017. Okay. And they were, they were built on the basis that you could beat the queue at the bar by ordering on their app. And then going to collect your drinks. Yeah, and it was. I, mean, I remember I, I I saw them doing it. They actually produced the best piece of promotional merchandise I've ever seen. It was the the Orderella umbrella. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Has a ring to it, doesn't I, it? <laughs> yeah, I, I've still got two of them at home. They are they are good quality and uh, always remind me of the story. So I remember seeing it and thinking, this is really good. It's yeah. new tech. I like new tech. So I thought, well. I'll get the app. I have the app. I thought, right. I was looking for a place where I could try it. And I, I remember I was, I was actually on a a, a trip to Dublin, mm-hmm. um, and I was in a pub, and I could. I thought, oh, there's an order or anything. I'm going to use the app. So I used the app, and I, I ordered a, a, a two pints, and I could see the bar, and I could see behind the bar they had the order on a tablet on the wall, and I could see it flashing, going new order, new order, new order. And all the staff were just walking around, completely oblivious to it for it must be about 10 minutes. Yes. I was just laughing at this stage. And then and, and one of them just sort of turned and going, oh, the thing is flashing. So it's, what do we do here? What do we do here? And it was it was a it was a funny experience. I thought, well, this is this is obviously not going to catch on if if it's not being used. Like oh, I was early, I get that. But I yeah. thought this is a great idea. It it made a lot of sense. But ultimately it was ahead of its time. It failed in like, 2017. Now, if I had been around last year... Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was so. going to say that because, I mean, my experience of going into a pub or a bar at the moment now is you kind of go to your table, sit at the table, and then you, I know, scan a QR code and or you download an app and then you actually get the drinks delivered to your table. So um, it's amazing that 
yeah, it's taken COVID for that to kind of change uh, market behaviour um, or yeah, consumer behaviour, definitely. Oh, t- totally. I think the, I think COVID has probably pushed us forward in that respect, probably five or six years, because you could see it happening before. So even pre-COVID, Weatherspoons had their app and that got a certain amount of traction. Um, but what COVID did was it massively increased the awareness of um, what QR codes could do to consumers. Um, yeah. It was helped by uh, iOS, including auto-scanning of QR codes in the camera app. I think in about 2018. So before that, you had to have a special app on your phone to scan a QR code. When you could do it with, with just the camera app, it made it much more accessible. Um, and yeah, it, the you could see that um, people had different um, expectations or uh, preferences for different occasions. So you could already see in the, the quick service space that people were using apps to pre-order their lunch and just go and collect it ahead of the pandemic so mm-hmm. if you if you if you're working in the city and you're nipping out to get food if you can go on uh, a subway app and order the sandwich that you want to be ready at a certain time you walk downstairs pick it up it's already paid for and just walk back you're probably saving yourself five ten minutes mm-hmm. in a day that's quite busy that's mm-hmm. that's a great use of technology um in the public the pandemic yes it was a way of of staying nominally safer than than going up to the bar um, but what it's also done is it's given people it's given operators much better data on what their cost who, who their customers are and what they're ordering sort of preferences are and you also see quite a significant uptick in spend when you let the customer place the order themselves than if they're being asked by a person yeah it's uh, i think um McDonald's did some research on it They uh, with their kiosks and their kiosk ordering was something like 12% higher than their wow. at-person ordering um, just because the lack of pressure of the sale meant people were more likely to to uh, to, to take the option for do you want to have onion rings or do you want to go large? <laughs> the, the machine was a softer sell than the, than the person. From the from the staffing perspective, you can you can do more with less if you take yeah. out, if, if you don't need, need to have as many people taking orders, they become just runners of orders. So it, it de-skills the job somewhat, mm-hmm. um, but it means that they, they can do more. But what it also found was that people left more in tips and service charge um, through the app than they did at the bar um, because of the ease of doing it. So if yeah. I'm going to a, into a pub and I'm paying, on, I'm paying at the bar on my phone, unless the PDQ option says do you want to leave a tip yes how much type it in pay that was how you did it whereas with an app it was like we have suggested that you add one pound 30 as a as a thank you to the staff if it was just like a yes it's done it adds no friction to the to the process so we found that a lot of venues were seeing like 500 600 percent increases in the amount of service charge they were taking just because it was going through the app versus versus being um, served at the counter. Wow. So, yeah, yep. lots it's, of very, is, very it, seismic it, changes. It is interesting because looking back on kind of recent times when I've been in restaurants using um, an app or ordering via an app, I guess the one thing that I found quite useful is you you, you have, the, you have the, the choices of what to order right in front of you. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, if you're ordering a, a drink, um, a lot of the time, sometimes when you ask the waiter, oh, what drinks do you have? And then they're put on the spot and 
it's it can sometimes be quite an awkward process but whereas if you're left to um order for yourself then actually uh, a bit like you said it's at your own leisure you can decide and then actually probably potentially have a, a, a nicer experience because of that um and i guess it's just the way that everything is going um it's very much kind of technology interaction as opposed to people interaction but yet you still get that well, because you're someone's still there <laughs> serving your drinks they're just not actually for example paying paying a paying over for example the bar so um yeah it's it's it's, it's interesting yeah. you were talking about that you are right you're right and you're wrong at the same time and it's, <laughs> it's 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 not that either is is correct better or worse it's that there is a different occasion where and a different setting where a different thing is better so yeah. if i'm going to a posh restaurant um i'm not there for speed of service i'm not there for pretty much anything other than having a nice time either the food the ambience the service etc if that's what i'm there for i quite like that interaction with the staff because I imagine they're going to have specials. I imagine their staff are going to know about the things that they're selling and they can tell me the reasons why a certain wine goes with a certain dish or why the chef has put this dish together, etc. cetera. Um, if I'm in a, a cocktail bar, the, the theater of the drink being made is part of the experience and that interaction with the bartender, that's part of the premium that you're paying for that drink. So in those settings, I don't think technology does have a place uh, in terms of ordering for yourself, et cetera. It's, it detracts from the reason that I'm there. Mm -hmm. But if I'm just out with some mates and we're in a pub and I want to get drinks quickly, if I can just go scan four pints, pay, done, and stay with my friends the whole time and not miss yeah. the conversation, yeah. that's a win there. So a, it's yeah, about picking the right, the right things for the environment you're in but where tech can always win is about adding extra layers of data to what you see so with calories being uh, made mandatory on menus for larger groups uh, earlier this month yeah um, and, aller and allergens coming in um, last year that's that's quite an endeavor to if you've got a restaurant that changes their menu even if it's only once a month mm -hmm. that's a lot of work you have to do to reprint the menus with all the different allergens against them and the calorie count etc if you just print the menu normally and then just say to see our allergens and our calories and stuff just scan the qr code it takes you to a page that's that you can say i'm a celiac therefore it will yeah. highlight the things that you can and can't eat that's really good because that's a better experience for that so my father-in-law is a celiac my mother-in-law is a vegan which means collectively we can eat nothing in our house um, <laughs> makes when, it difficult when we go out, <laughs> yeah it really is when when we go out it's really it's, it's hard to say like he says oh does your does your your, your chips are they fried in butter or something and it's it's really weird sets of things that you have to ask because they're not necessarily known by all the staff, they have to go back and ask. Whereas if you can just say, here's a QR code, I'm a celiac, someone that knows has gone through and said, these ingredients are in this 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 recipe, yeah. therefore it's not suitable for these things. That gets really accurate data to people. Sometimes with with like 
life-threatening medical conditions. And it, yeah, it's just, just a much better way for everyone to operate. So tech always helps there, but in terms of the replacing of people in the journey, the the, the setting and the expectation of the of the of the occasion, um, I think are are key in working out if that's uh, if that's right. Yeah. So I mean, generally as a found as a founder of the company, then are you more into, for example, the tech as opposed to maybe the customer-facing solutions? What is it that um, you're interested in? What do you do day to day? I was just thinking that from the first, like, <laughs> from the podcast up until now, I haven't done much talking about the tech, and I'm really a tech first person. I'm really a tech first I gather, person. I kind of gauge that, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I've talked a lot about the experience of what it's like to be in these venues, and I am not an operator. Um, but no, I'm, I am tech through and through, and it, it's something that the uh, the college and indeed Woburn Hill have a significant role in playing I, i've written software since i was eight eight years old thanks to my dad showing me the, the, the first few lines on the bbc micro um <laughs> way back when but then playing i i remember we had two computers in the library uh, in woven hill and one of our english assessments was uh was we had to make a, a newspaper and you could go and use publisher to lay it all out and everything and i just just enjoyed it and by the time i got to to st george's we had a computer room which seems like a laughable concept now but there was a room <laughs> for computers and yeah and poor mr axton had to had to try and keep these computers working while young children who had definitely got as much knowledge as he had uh, were were having fun breaking them and maybe doing other things at the same time and just spending spending lunch breaks when it was raining just learning different coding sort of well, you, you didn't have the internet so you had to learn from your friends who had learned a new command or you'd read a book or you got a magazine yeah. or something so yeah i always my my upbringing was always interlaced with uh with computing and i just i remember the first i think when i was about uh, about 16 we had a computer at home and you'd been able to to play music from a cd in the cd drive through the computer speakers for ages and then one day it stopped working and i remember thinking i can probably fix this but i can't see any problems with the software it must be part of something inside the machine physically yeah. and i remember trying to convince my dad to say look i think i can fix this but i have to take the side of the computer off and he was like no no you can't do that you know what you're talking about and i was like i well look here's what i've tried here's the the things that are left and so i guess oh okay but just be careful so i took took off the off the side of it sorry dad you were you were being protective um and I, and there it was there was a, a cable that went out the back of the cd drive that had, that had fallen out and i was like ah oh. plug that back in put in the cd and it all played i was like ah oh. <laughs> this was like oh i can i can fix computers now this is brilliant <laughs> and then it's one, one of the sad things was that uh at my time uh, at St George's, there wasn't an A-level in anything mm -hmm. computer-related. Um, and that was why I sadly had to leave after GCSEs to go and do a, an A-level in computer science, um, which, if I'm brutally honest, I didn't learn very much that was useful in it. Um, and that's not the fault of the place that I did the, uh, the course or the course itself. Yeah. The, the fact is that IT moves far too fast for conventional ed education to have a, a chance of, of catching up. Mm -hmm. I mean, to give it some context, we, we have had 
uh, at Cobas, we've introduced technology, learned about it, developed it, and removed it within three years. And that's been the correct life cycle for that for that application. There's been a better thing that's come along, mm-hmm. um, and that's just how it moves. But there's no way that uh, a teaching syllabus for a two or a three year course can stand a hope of being current when when things are moving so at that speed. Yeah. Like, yeah, things you learn in, in in your year one are obsolete by by year three. So conventional education has a very hard time in a in a field like computing that you're so fast moving. But things like legal and medical um, and things that have you know a slower pace or a, yeah. a bigger history to draw on makes complete sense. But in, in IT, it's just hard. I and mean, indeed, our, our hiring nominally shies away from candidates that have gone through too much further education um, just because people that really love tech don't find the need to do too much um, beyond A-levels normally. Mm, yeah. I mean, did you, is that was working in tech something you knew you wanted to do from when you um, started um, computer your computer science course? Was it or was it was it something that maybe you thought oh, I'm good at this? Um, I'll I'll see where it goes. Did you did you have a plan? <laughs> oh, I had I had plans. Um, the first plan was to be a professional sports person. Um, okay, well, in, had... in which sport? What was? What, what, um, it was going to be football. Something? Okay. Um, I I played semi pro for a while, um, but it was clear by the time I was, uh, I was playing semi pro seventeen eighteen, and yeah. I, I kind of I kind of knew then that if I was to have any shot of making it, if even a minor league player, I would need to give more effort to sport than I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, and that would be a sacrifice to my A levels. I thought, well, I'm going to need these bits of paper just in case. Yeah. Um, and at that point, it was like you know what well, I'll just I'll keep sport as a as a passion, but not mm-hmm. as a career. Um, when I was really young, I thought that I would do stockbroking. Okay. Um, I, it appeals to a lot of the things that uh, I think are my strengths, and indeed, it's almost come full circle with the with the advent of crypto and and that world. The both the the the, the, the computing side of things, mm. the the happiness with risk and the maths and analytical side that you need have all sort of come together so i'm i'm enjoying uh, my my time there but I, I always knew that i liked computers and when when i'd uh when i was looking at like what what am i going to get up every day and do mm-hmm. i i didn't really see anything that that wasn't it related um i started out my career as a telemarketer which was a, a soulless job, um, but it was specifically for a company who marketed IT solutions. Um, so I get I got to to learn the the, the product spiel of a of a lot of quite quite big systems. I remember I did campaigns for some telecom providers, for some ERP systems, uh, for some database companies, and it was clear that I knew more about the technology than the other people that were doing the same sort of phone bashing and it was you know it was it was a first job i was i was 19 um and yeah i i learned a bit about a bit about work i knew i knew that i liked the technology but i got i got excited by what the tech could do rather than the can i book a meeting with this person because that was just that was boring um i then 
moved into um, to IT support um, for a company that were based in uh, in in Cobham, uh, and that was doing telephone support, first line stuff for a company who who ran what is the the rarest of of IT things that I've heard of. It was a it was an extranet. So this is in the in the days pre pre-internet this was well, sorry, it was concurrent with the internet but okay. you didn't really have many websites that were just um you had no like um paid for services online it was just the internet was just loads of things mm-hmm. um so the extranet was you you your modem dialed a specific phone number that was this company's and when you dialed that that gave you access to special web pages that allowed you to do, in this case, it could do various um, financial products. So life assurance, term assurance, critical illness cover, those kinds of things. And the company that, that I was working for, they wrote those uh, those websites. Okay. Um, and that, that was and that was actually a really, really good job um, because we were in a team of about 30 people um, and it was very clear, that it was very clear to us that you need to answer the calls when they come in and we had, normally KPIs for how many calls we had to answer, how many we had to close and close first time. Um, but as long as you were hitting those numbers, you, you were free to learn and provide support to um, these uh, financial advisors as, as best you see fit. Now, it was it was really quite simple support work because it was in the days of Internet Explorer 6. So it was basically, do they have Internet Explorer 6? If not, download it. <laughs> If yeah. they have Internet Explorer 6, remove the active, ActiveX objects and reinstall them. If that was done, it was probably beyond scope of what you could do and you'd pass it second line. So I learned that in about three months, but it meant I could pretty much do all of my, my calls in sort of like uh, as, as a robot. I'm not really thinking about it. It's like I'm just doing this, this, and this. Yeah. So I'd always be at or near the top of the calls answered, calls closed charts. But in the background, I was learning to, to write more web-based code. Okay. Um, I was doing my first bits of PHP, and and that was I was like, oh, I'm I'm, in, I'm I always like writing software, but I'd never written stuff uh, from a for a web perspective until say 2000 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it had always been sort of Visual Basic or uh, or Pascal or or more thick languages. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I enjoy this. Then I mean, that company got bought, so I left and went went to I went. I went to, to Cornhill Insurance um, in, in Guildford um, and did my first contract there, which was for, for 18 months. I thought, wow, I could probably get another job. And it was then when I started, um, and I did that and it was all fine. And then I started probably three or four years of contracting nominally around London. Um, and I remember, remember thinking, oh, I am interviewing against people who are a lot older than me in these, in these jobs because my see was still... Uh, it was nowhere near as advanced as it is now. It was still a much smaller field. It was still populated by people who were um, hobbyist term professionals yeah. rather than people who had thought this is a career for mm-hmm. me. Um, I, remember, I remember I had to take my my date of birth off my CV for a while because I just, just didn't get interviews. I was <laughs> like, this kid's, tw- this kid's 22. He can't know about all of this. And he got no interviews. Took it off. Yeah, fine. Got interviews. But then, yeah, but then, of, of course, in an industry which is 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 fairly new, you probably had the same mm. amount of experience as someone twice your age. Thing. So Ex- Exactly that. 
exactly that. I mean, I was definitely not as as business savvy as the older people who had been around a bit, a bit more. Mm. That is that is fair. But in terms of pure technical ability, I would do contracts for three or six months at a time, and I would learn loads in that time, and then I'd move on and move to the the next level up. And that was great. And yeah, and that sort of span out to I think in two thousand and by yeah two thousand and seven. I think uh, a friend of mine, um, and this is where the the the, uh, <laughs> the the interwoven story of 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 St George's, <laughs> of nightclubs and Cobas all kind of sort of comes together. So it's a little bit of a longer story, but it's, it, it, it is uh, it is interesting. So uh, the story starts. I'm gonna say in in maybe. February or March um, 94 and um, a guy in my year uh, had given me a a mixtape of uh, a happy hardcore <laughs> DJ called DJ Dougal uh, an MC Majika and I really liked the music it was it was simply composed but it was it was fast paced it was high octane and I enjoyed it um and then a few weeks later i saw a flyer in a maths classroom for club empire uh, which was an under 18 nightclub in guildford and it happened that on this event at, at easter there was um dj Dougal was the headline act and i was like well, that's brilliant i can't see this guy he's excellent so i um a few of us went to that event and i absolutely loved it um <laughs> I, I I can still vividly recall elements of the night. There was a it was a the Cinderella's nightclub in Guildford. There was a foam machine. I was wearing my light blue shirt. It was a. I remember I definitely couldn't dance, and my hands hurt from doing the same rubbish move for about six hours. Um, but I enjoyed everything about the experience. Um, and so when the next one came up, I went to that. I went to that. I think I went to every every club empire that was put on from then until I missed one in 2001 because my then girlfriend took me rallying for a weekend and it was the same weekend. So that was allowable. Um, But obviously you can can guess under 18s from 94 to 2001 in that period, obviously I turned over 18. Um, And as I was getting up to that, that era, I was like, Oh, I'm going to, I was going to over 18 clubs as well as you tried to do in those days. I was like, Oh, I really enjoyed this. Um, maybe I can get involved in, in running it because they've, they have a, like, they're always um, under 18s helping out with it because part of the, the, the idea of the whole thing was it was a club put on by young people for young people. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, I remember walking past, I was in Woking Town Centre on a Saturday and I remember seeing one of the guys who I knew from, uh, from previous events. He walked past me I must have been 17 at the time <laughs> and he didn't give me a flyer. And I just walked past the past and I went very sarcastically, ah, well, thanks for not, not giving me an empire flyer. He generally went, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, man. Here you go, here you go. And we got chatting. There's a guy called Alfesh. Uh, we got chatting. He said, yeah, yeah, man. If you want to get involved, yeah, I'm sorry. All very street um, as you had to be <laughs> in, uh, in, in those days. Of course, yeah. Um, 
And yeah, over the next kind of year or so, I got more involved uh, with Al and I met Neville, who was the uh, the owner of the event. Um, weirdly, I'd been to one more empire than Neville because he'd bought it off of a guy called Darshak, the event after the one that I went to. So okay. it was funny that I had slightly more experience than he had at the event. <laughs> um, and Neville and I became very good friends um over the course of doing that i think by by the time i was 18 it was basically him his other half and me that were running all the events we i would tell them who i thought were the right acts to bring in each time Mm -hmm. um i was doing a bit of djing as well um that was all very fun um and we moved the event from cinderella's to the guildford civic hall now the guildford civic hall didn't have at the time and it still doesn't a very good sound system for a nightclub event uh, or the right lighting system but it was a, a large capacity than the nightclub so uh, it was financially viable mm-hmm. um, but that meant that we had to bring in a uh, a sound and light system and that was fine we, we used the we used the guy called john Evely, who i'm still friends with today he he runs the, the quite ridiculous rc1 um sound system it is a phenomenal work of engineering and sound um it, it really is impressive and so he used to come in and, and put his massive speakers in there and uh, also the lights around the, the edge and it was all great and as we were doing that um a guy called neil would help out john uh, he would like do some of the sound monitoring he set up the lights and everything and turned out neil went to to rgs and he was in the same year as me at school, I think. He's okay. A late August, he's a late August birthday, so yeah. we were similar sort of aged, and we were obviously into the same kind of music. Turned out we were both into our cars as well, and we got we got talking, and uh, we ended up becoming quite good friends. Um, and it was this Neil who said, "Look, I'm looking for a developer for for a, a part time contract uh, in the the late noughties. Um, Do you fancy it?" And at that time, I was not working any full-time contracts i was just doing bits and pieces for local businesses um say playing a bit of poker it was all it was a nice lifestyle uh Mm -hmm. without too much hard work i was like yeah okay i can do i can do like a four day a week thing for you that would be that'd be fine so that was good um gave me the the platform to do more um i had the money coming in and i had uh enough private work the other day and then i moved to doing three days then two days and then said look i'm I've got enough other stuff now and they didn't need me as much. Um, so that all worked out really well. Um, and then um, the, the thing that became Kovas started to be written. And in, in 2011, we got introduced to a larger, um, well, I say introduced. Um, my friends had worked at a larger bar chain before they'd done their own thing. Yeah. And that larger bar chain were now only had a venue that was sort of three doors down from their main site. And they had taken on some investment and were looking to grow. And they'd heard about the system that I'd written for my friends. Mm-hmm. Turns out my friends had used the exact same spreadsheets that this other company had used. I mean, you might say borrowed or stolen. Um, they were just really, really similar. An absolute coincidence. Um, but what it meant was all of the... Um, reporting that I traded in the system that would become Cobas was an exact match for what that company wanted to see. So it was a really easy sell for them. So I thought, okay, yeah. I'm now providing it to two people. That was great. Worked with them for a while. They they paid quite a lot of money to me to, to write bespoke functionality for them. Um, and then they introduced us to uh, a burrito company in the city. Uh, and this was in 2013 or so. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe, maybe there's a thing here. Maybe this is this has got wider appeal yeah. than just 
a few of my friends. Um, but I wasn't sure, so um, I called on Nev. Uh, Nev's day job was in uh, in software sales for a 3D CAD company. Okay, so I'm yeah. like, oh, you, you sell software. This has got to be as good a crossover as I can find from someone that I know. Yeah. Um, I said, look, I, I got a list of uh, a list called the uh, the MA250, which just is a list of, um, of of groups and how many locations they've got, etc. And I picked ten that had between sort of four and eight sites. I said, mm-hmm. Ned, could you call? Could you call these people and just try to find the right person, see if they want the system? I told him what we did. And just, just see if we get some meeting. Um, and he got us four meetings out of those times. <laughs> and, and and of the four, three of them went on to become clients. Wow! Um, and it was like, oh, okay, there must be a thing here. Yeah. And at that point, I knew that Neil wasn't too happy where he was at the place that I'd worked with him. Mm-hmm. I was like, look, I'm doing this thing. It appears to have some traction. It could be a bit of fun. Um, and he was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> Let, let's, let's give it a go. So that was the, the roundabout way that uh, <laughs> a flyer in a maths classroom uh, and, yeah. and everything all came full circle and, uh, and launched what is now Cobas. That is a really fascinating story. Yeah. And yeah, the kind of Surrey connection as well. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting. And now look, you've got... Um, how many offices now do you have? Uh, we've got one in the city. We've got one in um, Hull, and we've got one in Dublin. So yeah, across Great Britain. So just from that from that one story, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think when we're we're like obviously COVID was a, a tricky time because all of our clients were closed. They they couldn't pay us very much money. Um, yeah, and yeah, and like we we saw like lots of lots of uh fall in income and had to make some staff redundant and lots of furlough etc but that's that the, the low point i think was maybe mm. august 2020 maybe yeah. down to only we down, down to seven staff then um and to today i think if if the person who just offered a job to you says yes we'll have 32 stuff wow so it's, it's yeah it, was, up, it was really bad at the start but mm. i think the fact that the solution has been tech and one of the industries that was hit hardest and needing the thing that we're providing as their as their way out and giving them a chance also to say look we're closed we can look at change do we need all these things like it was a it actually has turned out to be probably the best thing that's happened to the business in a really weird way, like the, the human cost yeah. and, the, and the rest bad. But in a cold business, like what was the best thing for the Cobas product? Yeah, it was a three month break from life where everyone turned to tech as a solution. Mm. So, I mean, with that with that in mind, what what do you see for the future in terms of for yourself and the company? So it's um, <laughs> I know we spoke. It was sort of a preamble of, uh, yeah. before this interview, but it's all changed since then. Uh, and that oh right, okay. That, <laughs> that's the that's the pace. Well, moves quicker so than tech. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it's been a it's been a bit of a whirlwind year. We've had we've had a handful of uh, of uh, unsolicited approaches to buy us this year, yeah. um, and I've had to pause all of those earlier this month when a particularly large client. Uh, that we were pitching for have have moved us forward to an exclusive trial um, wow. with them, um, and that that will probably add if that, if that all goes well, and we'll, we won't we won't know, and the trial will be sort of 
Q3, Q4 this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we won't, we won't know until the end of the year. But on the basis that that rolls out, it will probably add 40% to our wow. size. Okay. Um, and on the back of that, we've actually got two larger deals that are sitting behind that that are with companies who are part of that kind of group. Yeah. Um, and if that comes off, that is, I mean, that's, yeah, it, it would probably, the, the whole group size would 10x our business. Wow. Um, so, yeah, some quite exciting things happening. That is very there. exciting. And, yeah, and it's just swung everything sort of around. Like we we did, a, did a load of, of uh, recruitment last year when we were we were growing quite well. We've now got this fairly big contract, so we're we're going out to, to raise some money to fulfill it, and that, looks like being quite an easy an easy job but then there's mm-hmm. options around do we do we take some some private equity or vc money yeah. uh, at this stage and and grow really big do we want to move we, we have some clients in europe now uh in ireland in spain and soon to be france as how much we want to target those markets we want to go out to the uae and to australia etc um so where we, we put effort there there's just lots of Lots of things I wouldn't have been thinking about two years ago that are suddenly, I mean, it's not even really we've thought about them. It's like we're being asked by yeah. people, well, can you go and do these things? And they're all they're all yeses, really. We, we would like to do them all, but we, we're we still a bootstrapped company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to make the decisions. Or you say, right, well, let's give away a chunk of the business to get in the capital and the experience to help us. Um, move into those territories and maybe go really big or maybe we sell maybe you think you know what this is a good time to get to get a really good price for the business walk away and uh, and start something else so it's it's, it's, it's your it's, it's your decision to make then there's no it, yeah it's completely your decision there's no i guess yeah, external I think, pressures from other funders or no. anything so well this is this is the thing if we took on money from from a vc or someone yeah. we would have that pressure there'll be a no we're here to grow you have to do these things mm-hmm. and i kind of like the freedom to say yeah we're going to do that no we're not going to do that that there is a a part of me uh, and those that were at school with me will certainly attest to this that that doesn't like being told what to do um, <laughs> <laughs> so having that complete c- completing air quotes uh, freedom is yeah that was the reason that I think I started the business. It was kind of by accident, but I think it was inevitable. Looking yeah. back at my my history, it's like I, yeah, I just like doing doing my own thing. And I actually did it all because working for yourself, you kind of like set your own hours. That easy lifestyle in my in my mid twenties was really mm. great. But now it's kind of gone back to being a job because there are. 30 other people who are responsibilities on yeah. Me, yeah on me doing things it's like oh i now haven't got the freedom that i used to have but equally it's it's probably a better place and also the yeah. thing that got me into all this was writing software and I, I don't write very much software um anymore um i actually wrote some uh in february specifically because i like to have i I, I like to do one feature a year just Mm -hmm. so that there's always my name next to some lines of code in the in the application base but it's it's all moving on so much but like i haven't done any real learning on the new technologies and stuff for for five years or so so the my usefulness in that sphere is is greatly diminished um but that's why that's what got me into it i like technology i like writing software then i started writing software and started to, to do the selling of the software yeah. And that was okay because the selling is quite fun. And now I've got a sales team, so I do the finance. 
and I didn't get into this to do the finance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so we, we, we've just appointed some uh, external accountants and they're going to run that function. So I can probably move into a product role, which yeah. is where I'll be happiest. Looking at the market and deciding what we're going to do next. It's exciting, a very exciting time. And having having you just said that, um, it leads on quite nicely to my final question to you. And that would be... Um, would you have or do you have any advice for anyone who's thinking about setting up their own company, whether it be in hospitality tech? Um, what would you, what piece of advice would you give to them? Okay, there are a few things. If if you're going to do it in tech, um, if you're technical yourself, then go as far as you can do on your own. Do it in evenings and weekends, etc. Get get your version one try and get that in front of people who would be your users and see what they think, take feedback on it and, and iterate, go as far as you can do before you look at getting co-founders and, and funding involved because the, the further along you are, the better it is for you. And the vast majority of, of tech companies don't, don't work. There's product, product fit isn't there or the, the economics don't work for whatever reason. So the further you can get without any sort of money, really being spent and just throwing time that's good if you're not technical then find someone who you think that is good and technical don't use an agency it's a very expensive way to get yourself your uh, your mvp um but find find someone that you can work with uh, in that capacity um <clears throat> but only do it if you have a passion for the thing like i'm i'm lucky that i like tech but i think i'm more passionate about Cobas because yeah. I'm also passionate about the the clients we serve. So mm-hmm. it's it's great. All of my clients are bars and restaurants and pubs. I can go interface and they go, oh, you're doing you Cobas. This is great. I haven't paid a full price drink in years in any of my client places. <laughs> it's uh, it's really nice. You have yeah, I could have written. Yeah. <laughs> I could have written a really successful like uh, finance tracking app, and it could have been a, a it, it, it could have been wildly more successful from a finances point of view. But you wouldn't have that connection with the users. Um, you never see people using it. Like I, I genuinely loved going into into bars and stuff and seeing someone. They're running six deep at the bar, but they're flying through the till, and it's all it's obvious that that's making mm. their life easier. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite rewarding. Um, you have an interest so in the industry, that's, exactly. Yeah, if you're starting something in hospitality, then key 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 thing is to make sure that you you have a product that you know the market is going to want so test it if it's food or drink related test it with friends families go on the street and do it getting getting impartial feedback is absolutely key make sure that everything is costed make sure you've got enough um enough headroom in your cost because food cost inflation etc is going to be it's going to be a tough year um and you don't want to keep raising raising prices in there um so it's a hard time from that side of things. On the other side, you're probably in a good place now in terms of rents and getting free periods and landlord contributions to things because there's more units available now than there than there, there has been as far as I'm aware. So that's that's a good thing um, for you. But yeah, it's it's going to be a tough a tough year. I think you'll see. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's, uh, that's for, yeah for the industry that's um, very honest advice yeah so uh yeah but don't, but don't let that, that distract you like my my wife would very much like to open a 
uh, a coffee slash wine bar. Yeah. Um, she has completely unrealistic expectations <laughs> of what it will pay. Yeah. And I'm, over time, I'm just tempering those down. So I don't know. You can't just take a fifty thousand pound a year salary from your first venue. It will not support that. I look for. It, I look, it might, <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> well, you've got, yeah, there's another client that you co-bust into, into a wine bar. So, well, I mean, there, there's. It's, it's often been said that we would like Cobas to have a place called the Cobar. Um, just I like that. Got ring to it. That's cool. It, it's uh, yeah. Uh, there's a, a song from the 80s that we might be playing over and over again if we have that. Um, <laughs> the uh, the Cobra Cabana. It's a, it's a horrible. It's a horrible pun. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'd like to run my own place. I, 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 but I would do it at the point when I wasn't so attached to the financial rewards of it. It would, yeah. it would need to wash its mouth. But I would do it more as a as a this is fun. Rather yeah. than This is this is the business. Mm. Um, but as with all things, make make sure that your numbers stack up. If you that's what it comes down to, got, isn't it? Yeah. If, if you haven't got a business, you haven't got a business. Yeah. It's just a, it's as simple as that. And starting things now in this space this year is going to be tricky. Yeah. Um, but that's uh, I think life is going to be it's, it's going to be a hard. That's year. that's very true. That's that, that so, is very true. Seems a change in the, in the downside though, um, because it's going to be a hard year. That is true. But if you make it through this year, it means that you're, yeah, you're in a really strong place and you've definitely solved problems that people care about. I'm going to put it better myself. That is, we're finishing on, an, on, a, on a positive with that. Definitely. Um, well, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, and um, in terms of, um Kobath in terms of um obviously personal life you're living in in Dublin I wish you the best of luck and um next time you're over in the UK please come to St George's as well uh we're I, we're now I always do. we're now fully back open following COVID so it's great to see um more OGs um we're having more events so um next time you're over please drop me a please drop me a line and I'll um show you around again again show you around the computer suite which is probably very different to <laughs> the <laughs> i weirdly look forward to seeing that um and it was also great to see the og hockey win the uh yes yeah the i plug there yeah that is uh that was, it's, uh that was fantastic they're going from strength to strength they're going to be playing in europe next year so yeah, yeah exciting yes, I'll, I'll exciting times one of the ehl games that is uh uncertainty cool. um okay thanks very much james um, thank you very much I'll, I'll speak to you soon Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Georgian Voices podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, why not sign up to our Always Georgian mailing list and receive all the latest Georgian news, including invitations to upcoming events and celebrations. To join, please visit georgianfamily.co.uk. If you or anyone you know would like to feature in an upcoming episode, please get in touch with the development team at St. George's.